Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is brought to you by Chick-fil-A East Peoria. Stay tuned for insider tips we're going to share during the episode. Today's episode includes some thematic material. I want you to be aware before you listen in the presence of little ears. I'm so grateful you're joining us today to hear from Julie Lockmore. She's the founder of the Dax Foundation. She and I met through an event she sponsored and our Chick-fil-A cow attended. When I heard her story, I was blown away and immediately wanted to share it with all of you. She's an incredible woman and I am so inspired after spending time with her. Here's our chat. Hey, Julie, welcome to the Savvy Sauce. It's good to be here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful that you're willing to share your story. Will you just begin by telling us about your upbringing? Sure. I was raised by a single mom with five girls. I was the baby. She was married to my dad, and he remarried when I was born. It was very difficult growing up in a divorced home. I remember bits and pieces of it, of the back and forth and the long nights of missing my mom when I had to go to my dad's and just the hurt of divorce, the hurtful words that I would hear about the other parent, issues of money and adult things that were intermixed with just the devastation of divorce. And deep down on top of that, I think What I remember the most is just the feeling of not being wanted and being left. My mom remarried when I was eight years old to another man who hurt her, and she stayed married to him for 20-ish years. Today, she is safe and, and well, but she was always loving. My mom never showed me ever one day of my life that she didn't love me. She did take us to church every Sunday. We went to a Lutheran church, and I rebelled. I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't believe it. I didn't. I don't really understand why I acted that way. My sisters weren't like that, but I definitely didn't understand why we were going there, and I didn't want to go there. I was so excited after I met my husband, that he didn't believe in God because I didn't want to go to church. I didn't understand the importance of faith in your life. I saw my mom as a loving, caring person, but I didn't see the need of having a father or savior. That was never taught to me. Um, When I was growing up, my grandparents did move in with us until my mom was remarried. And my grandpa Jack was amazing. He loved the Lord, and I knew that. He went to church as well and always loved my grandma and all of her faults. And that was just, now I see how big of a blessing that was. When I was younger, I would see her not be as nice as him. And I was always so, like, angry. But now when I look at that, I'm like, man, he was an example of Jesus in my home. And a lot of kids don't have any father figure. And I was just blessed to have him for the amount of time that I did. I did everything I could during the summer to get over to their house and stay there as long as I could because I felt safe. He was always joyful. He was always joyful to spend time with us and take us places and love on us. And he was proud of us. And so I got a little taste. 
I didn't necessarily have that day in and day out. My stepfather definitely didn't show us that. Um, and my father wasn't around. So I find great comfort in knowing that I was able to experience that. My dad left when I was six months old. And so my older sisters had some time with my dad. There's 10 years in between me and my oldest sister, and she had some experience with my dad in the home, but I had none. I only had the back and forth and the hard. And that definitely has an impact. Thank you for sharing a little bit more of the backstory. Sure. But then in 2007, your life changed significantly. Can you pick your story up at that point? In 2007, my husband and I had our first child, Dax. I got to taste love for the first time, like true, unconditional love. The moment I saw Dax, I was taken. I couldn't stop staring at him. I had joy, and and that is something that I didn't have. I struggled all that time growing up just seeking and trying to fill so many voids in different things. And here I had this little boy that they laid on my chest and that moment changed my life forever. And I'm so thankful for that. On his first birthday, on June 26th, it was our last day at home. We had breakfast and I, we took him up to his birthday party and Dax had struggled with ear infections, just normal things that kids come up against in their youth. And It just was not getting better. It was constant. And we got admitted into OSF Children's Hospital in Peoria. And that was the last time I was home with Dax. And that night, I remember the very first night in the hospital thinking, no one in my family had ever spent the night in a hospital. Um, There was no cancer in my family But I just knew that it was going to be okay for some reason that night. And it was a sweet night. And for some reason, I just remember that first night in the hospital. And then after that, it's kind of been a blur. We ended up going to a total of three hospitals from OSF because nobody could figure out what was wrong with Dax. They did blood work. They did CTs, they did all these scans, all these things to try to figure it out, and they couldn't pinpoint why he was so ill because he stopped waking up. Like we couldn't get him to wake up, and he was just so lethargic. And as a one year old, that's just not common. So we ended in Iowa City, and I spent a week there. It had been a month in between OSF and that point. I hadn't slept in a bed. I had been in a rocking chair. I had been wherever I could be just holding Dax. He was just so sick. They came into the room and they had found a mass in his head. And they went in and biopsied it and told us that it was a malignant type of cancer called AML leukemia, which is not a common type of leukemia. That's why it was so hard for them to figure out what it was in the other hospitals. Nobody knew. And At that point, we were sitting in there, and I was so in a daze. I had not slept. I had just been hearing, we don't know what's wrong. We don't know what's wrong from medical professionals and these doctors where I just had so much hope in them that they could solve this, but they couldn't, and I was not content in Iowa City. Iowa City is an amazing hospital, but for some reason, I was not content, and a gentleman came into my room. I wish I knew who he was. To this day, I still think of him. He came in and he said, ma'am, 
you know, we have options here. You can stay here and we can keep Dax comfortable, but there's nothing that we can do for him. His cancer is a rare form and there's no treatment. And he said, but if I were you, I would go to St. Jude. And I didn't even blink an eye. I said, I want to go there then. And within eight hours, St. Jude had sent a personal plane to Iowa City to the hospital and got Dax and took him to Memphis. My husband rode with him in the airplane because they told me I was going to go to Memphis for three months and I just couldn't even fathom three months. I had been gone from my home for a month. And so I was going to drive home from Iowa City, pack, pick up my mom, and then drive to Memphis all in one shot. Why Dax flew to Memphis. So that process started and I got to Washington, Illinois, where we live and packed and got my mom and went very fast (laughs) to Memphis. And that was before iPhones and GPS and things. So I had like MapQuest directions all mapped out in my car, packed to the rim, thinking I was going to go to Memphis for three months. I got pulled over once and the gentleman said, ma'am, you know how fast you're going? And I said, I don't, and I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get to my son. And he touched me on the shoulder and he said, I just want you to get there safely. And he said, God bless you. And for some reason, I I remember feeling his hand on my shoulder. And he just spoke those words to me. And I just, I just went on, got to Memphis and it was this massive complex. I was so overwhelmed. I'd been in so many hospitals and so many things were coming at us. I am naturally more of an introvert than an extrovert. Um, you know, I like to be um, in control, I guess. And then, and it was intimidating. And they showed me where to park. And I walked in and to the smaller building. And I was walking the halls. And I'm like, this cannot be the hospital. This has got to be like... I don't know, like a welcome museum or something because the walls, the murals and the people were just so like, everybody was from the South and so friendly and welcoming. And it was four o'clock in the morning. And I was just like in a daze. They told me to go, no, your son's in this building. Just go up a floor and down the hallway. And I walked down that hallway and I remember a ship that came out of the wall and it looked like a ship had crashed in this wall, but it was a playroom. And there was women that early in the morning just sitting in there cleaning toys with volunteer badges on. Everyone I passed in the hallway greeted me, looked at me in the face. And I walked around the room and found Dax. And Dax's dad was sleeping on the couch. And the nurse was holding Dax. And he was sleeping on her. And she was holding him in a rocking chair. And again, that moment, it's just like those little things, those little whispers from God that he's got it and that he's going to take care of us. We're there every part of the journey. And at that moment, I was just like, I had never had a nurse have enough time to help me like that. And that nurse was holding him while he was sleeping just till I got there. So he would stay still. And so that Dax's dad could rest. So that was my first taste of St. Jude. And I knew I was home at that point. The next day, Dax's doctor that we were assigned to um, promptly came in and introduced himself to us. He said he wanted us to call by his first name. That was the thing at St. Jude. The doctors were Rachel and Kim and 
Pia, and they, they addressed by their first name, and it, it really was a different feeling there. It felt like everybody was on a team, and everybody worked together. Everybody was there for the good and to love us, and they did that so well. The doctor spent four hours in my room and gave us his cell phone number to call if we had any questions, and again, I was like stunned because you can't even talk to a doctor unless you have an appointment and you get through a nurse and da 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 So that just didn't even register that I would be able to call him on his cell phone. And I just appreciated him. And I still do so much. All that he did on his days off, he would bring his family in to meet us on the holidays that were in town. Yeah, it was different. It was different than anything I've ever experienced. So During that time, though, when I first got there, a woman came to me, and I believe she is the woman who brought me to Christ. My husband was an atheist, and I just didn't want to believe um, in God because I thought I had to go to church. That's where I was. It's so embarrassing. But I was literally just so numb and so worldly focused that it was that small to me. This woman came to me and she had a daughter named Elizabeth and she had the same disease as my son Dax. And she asked me if I wanted to meet Elizabeth and I was like, I can't leave him, you know. And my mom had me go and I walked out and I got to see Elizabeth. And right away, Michelle started talking to me about Jesus. For some reason, though, I listened to her. I had heard about God at church all these years, and my grandpa loved God, but I never listened. For some reason, I listened, and I was drawn to her. I was drawn to her her grace, her presence. I was drawn to the way she loved others and loved her family in the midst of all of that. And then the next day, she came back in to check on me, and she told me she loved me. And this is, I came from a small town. I never had a stranger tell me they love me. I never had been in a situation this traumatic and out of my comfort zone. So it really struck me. We ended up spending a lot of time together. They started Dax's chemo treatments and told us, you know, you know, this is the plan that we have for AML. It's a heart disease, but we have this. And so you're just so thankful, you know, to have something. And um, we started that and Dax's body didn't respond and neither did Elizabeth's. We were there about the same time. She was a couple of months ahead of us. So she had gone through a little bit before, which was another blessing to have Michelle's guidance and her understanding of what I was about to walk through. God just orchestrated that perfectly, perfectly in a hard, hard way. So when the chemo wasn't working, they told us, you know, well, you know, we're writing this protocol and we can do a transplant. Dax is too little to have a transplant, but we're writing something and this new protocol that you can try. Dax is healthy enough and Elizabeth was healthy enough and all the other kids that had the the disease that were there at the same time were able to jump into this experimental study and try it. There was hope there. So we did, we got tested and Dax's dad was the stem cell donor for the first transplant. That was amazing. We were on the floor with Elizabeth at the same time. She had her transplant a little bit before Dax. And so you go a week before your transplant and you get just 
hard, hard chemotherapy. It literally kills your bone marrow. So if you don't have the stem cell transplant to replace that marrow that they kill, you cannot survive. So you go through this, this chemo that just wipes out your bone marrow. And then they give you um, these stem cells that go in there and generate new bone marrow. So it's just very, very intense. Um, but if you know anything about transplant, there's rejection, constant rejection. And when you're doing bone marrow, that's not just one organ, that's everywhere. So everything tries to reject this. So that was a big issue. And Dax had his first transplant. And we had a brief time, like a week, that it was gone. The cancer was gone. So after you have a transplant, you can't be in public for a year. With this type of transplant, you couldn't have any foods that had been open for more than an hour. So you can't like open up a jug of milk and give it to him and then put it back in the fridge and give it to him again. So we were just locked down. And you're locked down, you can't go to public places, you can't go to restaurants, you can't go where there's a lot of people. We had to stay in the hospital. I was in the hospital for, like, I think my longest stint was like 80 days um, because their counts have to be up so high just to be able to walk outside to go back into your home. It's hard. It's hard because if you can imagine your child not being able to go outside and just being stuck inside, it was very difficult. So like I said, I think we had about a week after transplant when they told us the cancer was gone. So I quickly rushed home and it was Christmas time. And I told my doctors right before we left, they had done a test that was going to tell us if it had come back. And I said, I don't care what day of the year it is. I don't care what time of the night it is. I want you to tell me right away. I remember where I was standing, what I was looking at when they told me that it was the transplant didn't fully take. So that means that the cancer was going to come back. And that was Christmas Eve at my mom's house. So after that, Elizabeth also, her transplant um, just was really hard on her. And I came back and I got to spend some time with them, but she did not survive. I did, though, get to, to have this amazing experience with their family. I had some time off, and it was before, it was Thanksgiving, so I'm, my, my timeline is off a little bit. But um, it was Thanksgiving time, and I, I was out of the hospital, and she was able to um, have her family up in the room, but she wasn't allowed to leave because she was so sick. So me and another girl whose son was also in transplant, we went and cooked Thanksgiving meal for the, everybody on the transplant floor. And we went back and served it. And I got to go into her room with her family and have their last Thanksgiving together with their daughter. Michelle, her mom, was just so grateful. And I was so angry. She was grateful always. She was grateful in those moments. She was grateful just to be able to hold Elizabeth all night. She didn't care about being tired. I just complained a lot. And I would just watch her with this grace and this strength. And all she did was pray. She said, I would have the TV on and I was trying like, you know, just get through the days. And she's like, Julie, 
you need to pray. She's like, it's the only thing we can do is just pray. And I just, I couldn't even grasp what she was thinking. So one time I did. And I just told God that I didn't believe in. If you're real, stop this. Please, you know, and that was the only time that I ever did. So Elizabeth passed away and Dax's, Dax's doctor said, Julie, you know, his dad's cells didn't work, but, you know, we can try yours. We can try another transplant. And I said, of course. So we did. And, and I got to be the donor there. And um, so they collected my stem cells and gave them to Dax. And that didn't work either. And at that point, St. Jude just told me that there was nothing left that they could do. And I got in the car and... I knew at Christmas that Dax wasn't going to survive, but my husband still didn't know the day that they told us to go home. I knew in my heart because of what I had seen the other kids go through, and my husband only came on the weekends. So I was very aware once there was a relapse that there wasn't anything to do. But he wasn't really part of the medical decision-making. He just came on the weekends um, I had to handle that on my own, which was a common thing down there because I lived there for a year and he had to go home and work. So that was a, a very common thing. And I just knew and he believed that there was something more out there that we could try, that we could do. And, and in my heart, I started grieving Dax the moment I was standing in that, in that room at my mom's house. I knew that was going to be the end, but I knew we could get time. I knew there was time, and, and I was thankful. The one thing that was really great about St. Jude is they taught me what hope was. I could hold on to something that I couldn't see. They could give me something that I couldn't understand, that I couldn't control. So they gave me a taste of that, a big taste of that, and they did it with grace, just like Michelle, the entire time. Those doctors were so nice to me. <laughs> And at times I was not nice. I was a bear. I Watching your child have so much pain is incredibly difficult, um, especially when the cancer was in his spine and I couldn't even change his diaper without him wincing. I couldn't touch him in his bed. The pain was so severe. I just didn't have it. I didn't have grace anyway. And in that moment, it was real clear. So... I've done a lot of apologizing <laughs> over the years, and they have been so gracious to love me and forgive me. And you just know that those people that are in those positions at that place are there and they know. They know what, you know, cancer doesn't discriminate. It hits all walks of life. It doesn't just hit the people with strong faith that can handle it or the wealthy people or the poor people or white people or black people. It hits everybody. So... They told us there was nothing left to do, and I was just in a whirlwind. Like, I had just been fighting for so long. I had been at St. Jude for almost a year and a half at that point, just fighting day in and day out, keeping track of his medications and medical decisions from one transplant to the next, to chemos, to, to everything, and I was, I was tired. I was tired for him. He was so frail. I was relieved that he wasn't going to suffer anymore. And that sounds terrible. 
But really, truly, when you see someone suffer, and I believe that was a gift for my heart too, was that I had so much time with my child. I got to fight for him. Should have done it with more grace sometimes, but I got to be there and to love him and comfort him and hold him. And for me, that was a blessing. And I'm so thankful for that today. So we went June of 2008 until October of 2009. St. Jude told us there was nothing that they could do. So we, they told me I could stay in Memphis and I chose to go home and that was really hard because I'd been in Memphis around so much um, devastation for that long. I came back and I had a little bit of, I don't know if it's called post-traumatic stress, but all of my friend's children had passed away that I was there with. And I'm sure it's post-traumatic stress. Um, and I just could not get settled in my home. People just were constantly there trying to, to help me. They wanted to cook for me. They wanted to give Dax things. And Dax didn't want people around. He was in so much pain. And so many people come in and out of your room at St. Jude and at the hospital all the time. He just wanted me. I was the only person he wanted. I just didn't want him to be upset. So I put curtains and things over my door. And, and during that time, he wouldn't see Christmas. So we brought down the Christmas tree and decided to have a little Christmas for him and give him gifts. And my neighbors were my friends that lived right next to me. And they're like, you know, what can we do? I'm like, I'm just really overwhelmed. And they're like, how can we help you not be overwhelmed? I'm like, I don't know but it's too much. So they did things like put a cooler on my doorstep and said, you know, please don't knock, just leave the food and the coolers and please leave gifts here. And I just couldn't open the door anymore. So during that time when I was feeling really overwhelmed, my neighbors decided to put up their Christmas lights early because Dax wasn't going to see Christmas just to show us that they loved us. And my friend Trish, my neighbor, had five kids, had just adopted a little boy and just had a baby, you know, strapped to her. She had uh, so many things happening. Went around door to door in Washington in our subdivision and told everybody what they were doing and to join them in showing Dax one last Christmas. So, you know, this was our first time out of the hospital. So that's where the Christmas lights became such a huge part of our life. And before I knew it, it wasn't just my subdivision. My town was doing it. And then the city was doing it. And then different people in different states were doing it because they were following us on social media and on my blog. They, uh, one really stands out in my mind is... The war was going on in Baghdad at the time, and there was a barrack. Somebody sent me a picture of a barrack with the word Dax and Christmas lights in Afghanistan. It was just like, it was all over the world. I had, I had met a, a football player's wife um, when I was in the hospital, and their daughter was sick. And he 
was going through his own nightmare with his daughter having a heart transplant. And on national television, he wrote Dax on his arm guards and his towel. And everybody was texting me to look. And it was just consuming. Those things were were exactly what I needed. Just those, the Christmas lights. It was perfect. It was perfect in every way. So I ended up actually going into the hospital here in Peoria with Dax for about six weeks at the end. So that would have been in November. I just said, I am just so anxious. I, I just wanted to rest. And, and I knew in the hospital was where I felt comfortable. I'd been there for a year and a half, pretty much all the time. It wasn't St. Jude, but we had a St. Jude clinic here. And I knew that they knew of Dax and that they would take care of me. And, and they did. They did. I got to go on a lockdown floor. There was It was a children's floor in the basement of the OSF hospital in Peoria. And there was a locked door and nobody could get onto the floor without calling the nurse's station. So I could just leave a list of who I allowed in the room. That was amazing. Six weeks. The nurses took care of his meds and I got to sleep. And I got to spend some amazing evenings with these nurses that took care of us. People brought me dinners and, and things like that. I didn't have to, to do anything but just take care of Dax. That was awesome. OSF was amazing. Dax did survive through Christmas, which was awesome. And then December 30th, it was really early in the morning. His breathing stopped. And I was there, and his dad was there, and Dax passed away, and burying your child when you don't have faith is a very hard experience. So after Dax passed away, so many people were doing things for me, like writing songs and drawing me beautiful pictures and poems, and it was, again, just amazing. And I was in the hospital because I was pregnant with my daughter. I got pregnant with her right after Dax passed away because I was gonna, I couldn't even function. I, I didn't know what to do. I was a mom of a child with special needs. I was doing so much and I was, I felt so empty and I wanted something right away. And so um, I, I had her in, I was in the hospital in the process of delivering her and I got a phone call and it was um, a songwriter named Matthew West. I wasn't a believer. So I was like, you know, that's so nice of you. And he's like, yeah, ma'am, I just want you to know some people wrote to me about your son Dax and three people from this town of Washington. And I'm just really inspired by his story. And I wrote you a song. And I was like, can you just email it to me? I'm in the middle of something. And I was just, you know, it was just to me another, another thing. And I was just so excited to meet my daughter and I just didn't even pay any attention until, you know, I got out of the hospital and I'm like, he asked me if he could make a music video about the song and put it on YouTube. And I said, well, sure, you know, that's great. Thank you. And it went viral that day. It was amazing. And then all of a sudden it was on the radio and all over and within a couple weeks, I mean, Madeline wasn't even a couple months old and movie producers were calling us wanting to make the song into a movie. And this is totally the Lord 
and I had Lifetime Network and the Gospel Movie Channel, GMC, and I honestly don't remember how all that went down. A gentleman who kind of stepped in as our manager at that point, who was working with Matthew West, he just helped us because we didn't know what was, you know, what to do. All I knew is I just wanted the money to go to St. Jude. St. Jude did all they could always. Like I told you when I first got to St. Jude and they were holding Dax when I got there to keep him comfortable. With every single thing they did, never once did I hear, oh, let us call an insurance company or let us check with somebody. There was never a question. They did so well. That place is run beautifully and I'm just so thankful that I got to experience the work that they do. So I wanted to give back everything to them because at that time I still didn't have faith and I still just believed that they were, the doctors were, you know, curing these kids and and they are, but they were the only hand in it, you know, so I was just so thankful for St. Jude and so excited to do something. I'm like, I just want all of it to go to St. Jude. I want them to approve everything and, and just work through them. So we ended up going through GMC, the Gospel Movie Channel. And I'm not a believer. My husband's an atheist. And this Christian songwriter just wrote a song about me. <laughs> and I was like, okay, now I'm like, okay, Lord, you know, you are not going to let me go. So we go to Hollywood and Madeline is like so little, not even six months old. We go to Hollywood and we shoot this film and Matthew West gets to be in the movie as my neighbors who started the Christmas lights. And the movie um, aired on the Gospel Movie Channel and it broke their records. It was amazing. I don't even know. I'm using the word amazing a lot. It was remarkable. Like, how could I not fall in love with the Lord? Ah, He is so faithful and so big and so much bigger than my mind. So after that situation happened, some really unfortunate events happened right after that. My husband divorced me, and I was devastated. Within two years span here, my son had passed away. I'd had a baby And my husband just left and I couldn't move. How I grew up, I was a people pleaser at heart. It was the deepest sin that just had me choked. You can call it people pleasing, but what I call it would be like a a men addict. Like I, I sought their approval. I wanted it so bad that I would go after, you know, people who didn't treat me well. And I was devastated by this. He was my biggest. My husband was everything to me. And I fell hard. But God has used that in such a big way. And I'm so, so thankful to be sitting here today and to tell you that I am so grateful for my parents' inadequacies. I'm so thankful for my ex-husband's inadequacies. I'm thankful that my son had a different path than what I would have chosen for him because I wouldn't love my Jesus like I do. All of my anxiety has went away. I am on no medicines. I was so anxious. I was so worried. I was so controlling. It was gripping me. I was miserable. In the midst of that, I heard this really good speaker say it so perfectly. He said, when I gave my life to Christ, 
He in the word becoming one changed everything for me. So now Jesus became the scripture and the word of God came alive and I fell in love. It wasn't the institution of Christianity that saved me. It was the person of Christ. And when I stop and I think about the examples of Christ in my life over the years, starting from my mom, who always loved me. Even in her inadequacy, she loved me. My grandpa, he loved us. The love that I felt for my son and the love that Michelle showed me, those things made me fall so hard for Jesus. But I had some work to do. I had a lot of work to do after that. And so at what point was it that all of that came together? The point that I surrendered my life to Christ was when my husband decided to divorce me. And I walked into Harvest Bible Chapel in Peoria. And there was a song on the screen and I read the words. I was, I was just going really to appease a friend And the words on the screen said, I am your hope when you are hopeless. And I knew when my husband left me, I felt hopeless. So I knew that was my biggest God. Makes sense? Makes sense. So I was in that hopeless state and I needed a God. And I knew that mine rejected me. And that's what I had growing up. And I was done. And I was all in. I don't even remember what the sermon was about. It was just that one line and that one song. I mean, I tasted hope. I tasted hope at St. Jude. I had tasted hope in those people that showed me that type of love. But I wanted that in me, and it wasn't there. And no man could give it to me. But my whole life, that is how I functioned. That's what I sought. I was a man addict. You know, you can be a drug addict. You can be an alcoholic. You can be a food addict. I was a man addict. I was a people pleaser. I did everything I could to please man. And we are all sinful. There's no person. And how dare I hold him at that standard? You know, forgiveness has come so naturally to me in those situations too, which has been an amazing blessing because I can look at them and that was not his fault. That was my fault for holding him there. He did choose to leave and divorce me and that's on him. But My sin in that was I was holding him accountable for my joy. And that was wrong of me. It's taken a lot of years. But man, is it good when you can understand what God's love looks like. So at that moment when you walked into the church and you see that line on the screen, how did your life change from that point forward? When I saw it on the screen, I just cried. And I waited till after the sermon. And I asked my friend that drugged me there to go up front because they said, you know, come up, we'd like to meet you. And I went up to my pastor and his wife and I said, I want God in my life and I want to ask him into my heart, can you help me? And my pastor, Tim, and his wife, Jonna, took me under their wing and they loved me. And to this day, I still consider them my spiritual parents. They they took me in and and so she would tell me, you know, you know, Julie, what does it say about your heart in this situation in this, you know, in the scripture? And I would read it and I I couldn't get angry at her. She was showing me the word, the truth of God, the the living word of God. And 
And it was showing me that my heart was filthy and that it was me. And man, was it, is it good just to repent to a God that loves you and forgives you? You know, and I have never had a father that showed me that. And so that's why I just rejoice in my the inadequacies of my family because I don't think I would be so on fire and excited about serving him and all that I do if, if it wasn't for that. You know, I now God please. And that's the only way that I can, I have to focus in that in my, in my marriage, my new marriage to a man of God who's amazing in my work, in my charity work and in my parenting and in my friendships All that matters is that he approves and that burden off of my shoulders. Just, I feel so alive and I felt so weighted before. It's incredible to hear that whole story. And then all of this leading up to God's been pursuing you this whole time. Let's take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Chick-fil-A East Peoria. Here's a few insider tips that you may not know about Chick-fil-A East Peoria. First, the best kept secret is their chicken for breakfast, which is served Monday through Saturday, 6.30 a.m. until 10.30 a.m. My personal favorite are the chicken minis, four chicken nuggets tucked inside a mini yeast roll and then glazed with honey butter. Or you can try the egg white grill if you wanna pack in the protein. Second, did you know that Chick-fil-A caters? They will deliver and set up all of your food for your event, such as your business meeting or your birthday party. There are even a few menu items that you can only get through catering, including the waffle potato chips and chilled grilled subs. Finally, did you know you can skip the line and earn your way toward free food in the process? Just download the free Chick-fil-A app so you can place your order and pay on your mobile device, then bypass the entire line as it's ready for you when you arrive at Chick-fil-A East Peoria. For more insider tips or to fill out an application online, head over to CFA. EastPeoria.com. Wow, Julie, your devotion as a mama is so inspiring. And now as a daughter of God, it's just incredible to see the impact that Dax made on this world, even in his short time here and all of those circumstances that followed. What were some of the most helpful things that you remember from that season that other people did to get you through? You know, a lot of times we go through trials and Our support system in normal life is normally our family or our close friends or the people that that we make our support system. And when you go through a hard time, those people were still expecting me to be their support, those people that leaned on me. And I I kind of like to use the um, analogy of a broken arm and a sling. I'm the broken arm and I need a sling. I've got nothing to give. I have no strength. I can't do anything. I need you to do everything for me. Open my doors, fold my clothes, understand that that person is broken and God is working. Believe that with all your heart and be that love that they need in that moment and don't expect it back and always be quick to forgive because that is what love is. God shows us over and over in the word he provided for his people in huge ways and they would stray and, and he would, they would come back and he would love them and, and just show them that. Show them that what unconditional love looks like in that time. It's incredibly powerful. That broken arm in the sling, 
is healing. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're saying. People can come around while you're healing. That is so true. I didn't even think about that aspect. But yes, that broken arm is slowly healing but needs to be held up by the support. Like my neighbors, when they said, you know, how can we make it better for you? And they came up with that idea because I couldn't come up with anything on my own. A lot of times people are like, what do you need? What do you need? And really, I just wanted, you know, to be left alone. But um, what they were doing was good. And how can you harness that? Find a creative way. Find a way outside just to show them support. Present it to them in a way that is loving, but you don't need a response. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's really helpful for all of us to hear so that we can come alongside someone in our own lives who's grieving. Maybe you just put words to what they needed. Yeah. Do you have any encouragement you want to share for a listener who is going through some kind of trauma in their life right now or a grieving process? You're going to say the wrong thing. I have been through this and I've said the wrong thing to people. Opinions are our opinions and maybe just leave those out and maybe just give loving words and don't give opinions. Those people are hurting. And in that time, there's not really a right answer. It really depends on the person, but I hear all the time things that you shouldn't say, you know, and there are things that I say though on acts, like you don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what to say to these parents that are new and they think I do because I've been through it. But honestly, really, I didn't have ears to hear. I didn't have eyes to see and what Michelle needed to hear. And she loved the Lord. She needed to hear scripture but I didn't, that irked me and that made me frustrated and I needed something different. So when you don't, if you don't know the person, just, just that you're thinking about them and you love them and you care about them, I think is great. I think advice is just something we should just not unless they ask for it. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. How has walking through this whole experience with Dax impacted your parenting with Madeline? I knew for a good year that Dax was going to pass away. So I knew that I had a limited amount of time with my child. And so what was on television didn't matter. What was on Facebook didn't matter. I never wasted a moment. And I really truly lived that out. And I, with Madeline now, now I know tomorrow is not promised with her. I know that this evening isn't promised with her. I know something could happen. I know the Lord is coming, but I know that she loves the Lord and she's asked him into her heart. And it is well with my soul that she is going to be okay. Because being okay is knowing that Jesus is our Savior. And I'm just so thankful that I was able to pour that into her. If I would have stayed on the same track with Dax and he wouldn't have gotten sick, what would I have done for my son? I would have created another man in this world that was not God-fearing, that was going to treat women the way I was being allowed to be treated. I'm thankful. That's incredible to hear such wisdom and you have such a unique perspective. So it seems that the Dax Foundation grew beyond what you even originally intended. Can you share what the Dax Foundation is currently up to? Yes. 
So I started the Dax Foundation to give back to St. Jude right after Dax passed away. And my goal was to raise $1.6 million. When we were there, it cost $1.6 million a day to give that type of care to all of those families. Today with inflation, I think it's $2.2 million. And during that time of fundraising, I also had a very strong passion to bring to Peoria, where there's a St. Jude Clinic, free housing for families that was very close to the hospital that you could walk to. Because when I was able to get a breath of fresh air, it was because that housing was right next to the hospital. In those times, in those houses is where these families get together and they share what they're going through. And to me, without Michelle doing that, I don't know what I would have done. God's plan and that was perfect and I don't I don't question it, but I knew that Peoria, where I was from at the children's hospital, needed something like that. It needed something right at the hospital that you could walk to and for families to stay at that was free. A place that brought people together in communal areas to cook and to talk and for kids to play and it be set up just for kids and very close to the hospital. And I was passionate and I was going to push and I've been pushing and pushing and pushing for about four years now. We have just been approved to break ground this September in 2018 to build our very own Ronald McDonald house right next to the hospital. It is a 22-room house that 700 families will stay in a year for free. Yes, so we raised the $1.6 million. We completed that two years ago. And since then, I, um, on the back end, have, have worked on this project. And it's not my house, it's God's house. I just believe that God put this on my heart and put me in this place to bring glory to him. And I'm just thankful. I'm just thankful. I, there's no other word. Well, that's incredible that that's your word because the first time that I interacted with you, thankful was the word that came to mind. Just this sincere gratefulness that comes out. Some listeners may want to show you their support after listening today. So what are some ways that they could do that? You know, there's lots of ways you can help financially and spiritually prayer over this house being built, just the families that are going to come in. I strongly believe in prayer now. And it's, you know, it choked me up earlier to think about that. I never prayed, but just prayer for the families that come in, that they just feel that love and that it moves them to make a change. That's my biggest request. And then of course, financially, we always need help. And if you go to my website, the daxfoundation.org, you can see our campaign to raise the money for the Rob McDonald House. I'm personally donating a million dollars and it will be the wing where all the St. Jude families will stay. It has to be designed a little bit differently. So it's going to be called the Dax Wing and it's just going to be equipped differently for the medical needs of the St. Jude families. So the daxfoundation.org. Yes. And it is amazing what you were saying about not praying before because you didn't know at that time. And yet again, Jesus is the redeemer of all things and all the prayers that have come from you since that point. And since you had ears to hear, it's just amazing. 
Well, I appreciate your willingness just to share so many heavy topics, but in the midst of all of that, you point it back to God's goodness and his grace. And we're going to conclude with a much more playful question. Sure. We're called the savvy sauce because Uh savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge. Yes. And so as my final question today, what is your savvy sauce? What I really, you know, think is the most important thing is that people get to know their God. And I would just encourage you to, to be in the word every day. I have made him my number one. And so it has become a habit to a delight to me now. And I just encourage you to do that because it will change everything. I used to look through the lens of Julie and my emotions and my feelings and what I deserved. And now I look at something and I, it's like, I'm holding up a Bible is how I like to picture it. And I look through the word and you know, how can I use this situation to glorify God in everything and deepen your relationship with God and get to know his character more. And I promise you it is good. It's always good. That's my savvy sauce. That's an incredible savvy sauce. Thank you for sharing. Julie, the few times that I have been around you, I've always left very inspired by your faith. And today is no different. I know that listeners are going to feel the same way right now. So thank you for entrusting your story to us today. It was an honor to get to host you as my guest. Thanks for having me. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death, and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished, if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community 
that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.